what we're really trying to learn is how can we live in balance with this area so that both our, our human needs are met, but our ecosystems are also able to, to thrive and be sustained. Welcome. You're listening to Amplifier, raising voices against rising temperatures. We're a group of Emory students, alumni, and a professor passionate about bringing people together around the current climate crisis. We aim to equip listeners to accelerate climate action by providing accessible information, amplifying diverse voices, and highlighting the intersections of environmental issues. Join us this season as we investigate the climate crisis through a variety of different lenses and topics. Hello, these are your hosts again, Jaya and Thomas. Last episode, we discussed oysters, the history and science behind oyster farming, and how oysters could be a vital component in mitigating the coastal effects of climate change. We heard from Dr. Ashley Smith, a professor of biogeochemistry from the University of Florida, Dr. Jane Harrison, a coastal economics specialist with North Carolina Sea Grant, and Ms. Natalie Simon, a biologist in the University of Florida's Shellfish Extension Team. Today, we are welcoming back Dr. Jane Harrison and Ms. Natalie Simon to help us continue our investigation into sustainable aquaculture, shifting our focus towards the policies and economics of the oyster industry. While we weren't able to speak directly with any oyster farmers, we heard from Ms. Simon about how oyster farmers are dealing with the changing climate. Is climate change a concern for growers? So when you say, is it a concern to our growers? Um, there's actually a group of growers from both the east and west coast of the U.S. that have joined forces with the Nature Conservancy to form what's called the Shellfish Growers Climate Coalition. And their goal is to shed light on how climate change is already having an impact on food production in the U.S. And not only on food production, but their lives and their livelihoods and this need for climate action. And uh, from Florida, there's actually nine shellfish operations that have joined the coalition. And you can see the full list of all the shellfish farms that have joined on their website, nature.org slash shellfish for climate is the website. And they've created a documentary called Against the Tides, which is a great film that I highly recommend because it, it really showcases their personal stories of the shellfish business owners across the US. That's great. We encourage our listeners to check out Against the Tide. Against the Tide documents the personal stories of shellfish business growers across the United States, showing how shellfish growers are changing the game on climate. The only way to be able to watch this film currently is to attend a film festival that is offering it. We want to remind you that the link to the Shellfish Growers Climate Coalition is posted in our podcast notes. How are oyster farms being impacted currently by hurricanes and storms resulting from the changing climate? In terms of environmental impacts, hurricanes, again, have been some of the most impactful events that have occurred, um, especially because they are becoming 
more prevalent in the panhandle, unfortunately. Uh, Hurricane Sally did a number on a couple of our operations. And then there's Alabama, which has been hit now by Sally and Zeta. But then in terms of mortalities, again, it's a mixture of this high temperatures, um, low salinity, and then sometimes low dissolved oxygen events that can have negative impacts on our clam and oyster operations. How are you mitigating the effects of climate change? We are actually a part of the Gulf of Mexico Oyster Genetic and Breeding Research Consortium. I know it's a very long name, but the purpose of this consortium is to actually assist industry and state agencies by developing genetic lines for improved performance um, in production, and then also improving market value traits specific to the Gulf of Mexico. So what's really great about this project, it's actually directed by industry needs. So we sent out surveys to growers asking what traits they thought were most important for the future of the industry. And this included focuses on high and low water temperatures, high and low salinities, along with other environmental influences. And we'll be using those survey responses and feedback to attempt to improve those traits and direct future breeding programs. And so that uh, consortium actually includes Florida, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, and Texas. Now we will dive into the policy side of shellfish mariculture, which describes aquaculture occurring in a purely saltwater environment to determine how laws and policy plans address growing the industry sustainably and whether they adequately address climate change. Right now, one of the main ways we can reverse climate change trends and support oyster farms is to enact policy changes and regulation changes. Do we have any of those regulations in Florida? We have a lot of regulations in Florida. So we have, again, the Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services, their Division of Aquaculture, which regulate. And then we also have FWC, which is the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. Um, so they're the ones heavily regulating and you can go on their websites and see what limits are, whether you're recreationally harvesting or whether you're a commercial harvester as well. So um, there really shouldn't be a threat from over-harvesting because again, it is heavily regulated. Dr. Harrison, what do regulations look like in North Carolina? North Carolina Division of Marine Fisheries, um, they're the ones that will, you know, enforce regulations and interpret regulations. You know, the regulations actually are implemented, though, or designed, written by the North Carolina General Assembly. So that's our state legislative body. Um, and we try to stay in touch with them. So, you know, uh, when it comes to springtime, when they're coming up with their plans for the year and budgets and everything, you know, it, it's very common that our oyster growers will go and talk to them. I might go and talk to them um, as they're thinking about what do we want to do in this space. In the United States, federal aquaculture regulations are extremely unclear. The first regulation was the National Aquaculture Act of 1980, signed into law by former President Jimmy Carter. Its main duties involve documenting federal opportunities for aquaculture expansion. In fact, most of the current policy debate focuses on if and how aquaculture should be expanded into United States waters. With this policy debate, many stakeholders have become concerned with the environmental challenges that intersect with the fed and unfed aquaculture projects and their respective locations. 
To review from our last episode, fed aquaculture involves the farming of finfish species such as salmon and carp. These finfish require large inputs of food and create lots of waste. Unfed aquaculture is the farming of self-sustaining species such as kelp and various kinds of shellfish. Policymakers must be informed in order to select the best sites and practices, especially considering fed systems. Luckily, state waters already successfully support unfed aquaculture systems, which are much more environmentally friendly than fed systems. We analyzed the North Carolina Strategic Shellfish Mariculture Plan, a vision to 2030. This plan was written in and submitted to the North Carolina General Assembly on December 30th, 2018 with help from many different stakeholders. One of those stakeholders is our guest, Dr. Jane Harrison. Dr. Harrison, can you tell us about the North Carolina Strategic Plan for Shellfish Mariculture, as well as any role you played in it? I was involved in helping to shape some of that plan, and I, I was involved in the stakeholder meetings and providing input on it. And that was, um, you know, really uh, I think important work because it provides recommendations to the North Carolina General Assembly, our state legislative body, about you know what we want to see in terms of, of regulations and how do we grow this industry sustainably. So some of the elements in there that I've been working on since this plan was developed are related to the marketing elements, so North Carolina's Oyster Trail. It was a really great exercise in that we got together, you know, it was industry, so the oyster growers themselves, it was, um, you know, scientists, it was folks from the, you know, Division Marine Fisheries, nonprofits like the Coastal Federation that, you know, have an interest in this space and got all of our heads together and said, what can we do to grow, to grow this industry? It's just a great kind of roadmap. Aquaculture can play an important role in supporting a blue economy which is when a coastal region's economic activity is in balance with the long-term capacity of ocean and coastal ecosystems to support that activity and remain resilient and healthy. Dr. Harrison, what will it take for North Carolina to have a blue economy? I do think we have to really invest in shellfish mariculture. One of the benefits of that particular industry is, okay, we have a market product for sale. We have a food product that we're going to get our protein. We're going to get our zinc, various nutrients, but we also have ecosystem benefits. So ecosystem services that come from oysters. So they're filter feeders, they clean the water, um, they improve water quality. They also serve as habitat. So oyster reefs, they're a great place for spawning fish, um, for fish to kind of you know, hide out, protect themselves from predators. And they also provide some shoreline control and some protection against shoreline erosion. So that's great for our, our property owners and folks who live right on the coast as well. So it's just one of those examples, I'd say, where we've got the, the economics, the social, the environmental side, all working together in tandem. Dr. Harrison is right. Oysters are a great example of an industry that provides both ecosystem services and economic activity through restaurants and tourism. Their ability to protect shorelines from erosion and create habitats for other marine species is clearly laid out on the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Association's website. The link to that site is in the show notes. Are you optimistic about the future of oysters in North Carolina? I mean, I am optimistic. I think, you know, our, our industry has grown a lot. And, you know, one of the things that we just have to 
continue to consider and bring into this is the demand side. So I think we have a lot of possibilities to grow supply. But at a certain point, I wonder, will we hit kind of a ceiling with how, you know, how many oysters we can sell at the price that our growers want? You know, once you have a glut of supply, you bring the price down, um, it becomes more of a commodity product. And that'll potentially, you know, hurt our industry. So we've got to grow demand as we grow supply. I think the possibilities are kind of endless. I mean, with oysters, we've lost 90% of our wild uh, stocks since, you know, maybe the late 1800s. We can bring those back. I love to see, you know, not just kind of the market product focus, the seafood that we eat, but also this idea of, you know, restoring our coastal ecosystems. And I'm, I'm very excited about how oysters can play a role there. How has COVID-19 influenced the shellfish economy and what are oyster growers doing in response? Yeah, no, it's had a huge impact on so many industries and shellfish, you know, mariculture is one of them. You know, most of the seafood that's produced in our state goes to restaurant markets, especially oysters. And that's where they get the highest value for their product. You know, when those markets, the restaurants shut down with the quarantine period back in the spring, that was really scary for a lot of our growers. Now they are used to challenges arising. Um, They are constantly dealing with hurricanes and storm events that completely close down their ability to work, their ability to harvest. So it's, it's not really a new thing to have a disruption. This is a new kind of disruption, but luckily many of them have been able to pivot. So what they've had to do is to find new markets. And some of those new markets are you know, really increasing, getting directly to the consumer. What are some of the methods oyster growers have been undertaking to reach consumers? So I know oyster growers, they do a lot of home delivery, whether that's by mail or in person. Um, they've been even getting involved. I think, I know the seafood industry has been getting involved with CSAs. So, you know, community supported agriculture where you get like a box or bag of groceries every week delivered to your door, but you know, they've had to, you know, kind of figure out where are they going to sell our seafood markets are doing really well. So that's been a place where I think we've seen a lot more distribution of, of seafood products, including oysters than in the past. So those are kind of your specialty markets that only sell seafood. Um, they're also working hard to make sure their products are in grocery stores. So now more and more, you know, if you're at a, you know, a slightly higher end grocery store, you can find North Carolina oysters, so like Whole Foods or a place like that. Concluding our policy investigation, we believe that the key components of any aquaculture project should include a siting plan, full compliance with the National Environmental Policy Act, consideration of protected marine sites where endangered species may reside, proper inspection parameters, cleanup programs, and transparency with species being grown. As an example, genetically modified organisms and non-native species should not be introduced into open ocean systems and should be kept to isolated inland settings. Let's take a moment to hear one last time from our speakers on their recommendations for steps we can take. First, let's hear from Simon. Well, I always say eat more shellfish. And I also believe in eating local and eating farm-raised fish. Uh, The Monterey Bay Aquarium has a seafood watch website Um, which is really a great resource on there. They have a consumer guide that actually helps 
recommend which seafood items are best choices, good alternatives, and which ones you should avoid. Um, so that's a really great resource. The other thing about getting people just more involved looking at shellfish and where they come from. Um, so this was a really big initiative we did in Florida and it was the Big Bend Shellfish Trail. It started as a map of these local businesses in four of our coastal counties along the Big Bend. And it guides seafood lovers to popular locations where they can uh, buy, eat, and in some cases actually harvest the fresh shellfish. Yeah, so that's a really great source. Finally, Dr. Harrison has some advice she would like to leave us with. The American diet, you know, again, is very focused on chicken, beef, pork, and having a lot of that, and maybe with potatoes. And it's just not the, the healthiest, nor is it the best for our environment. And so sometimes I think what we have to do to create kind of a, a sustainable way of, of living is we do have to reinvent some of our cultural norms and our food traditions. Something I've worked on is to really connect as much as we can with the commercial fishing industry and to say, you know, oyster aquaculture is something that can augment your livelihood. So, you know, I'm not saying let's get rid of commercial fishing, but if you are catching a couple, you know, different kinds of seafood every year, and then one of them gets regulated to the point where it's not viable for you to catch, you know, you could be growing oysters on the side to make sure that you've got, you know, income coming year round. Oysters provide us with an abundance of vital ecosystem benefits. They filter the water and improve water quality, provide habitats to other aquatic species, protect our coastlines from storms and erosion, and finally, they are a nutrient and protein-rich food. Oysters are going to play a key role in the future health of our coastal environments. As for what the general public can do to support the oyster and shellfish industry, first, people should begin by eating more shellfish. People can support the industry by buying and consuming oysters farmed locally or in the United States. If the market for oysters expands through more people consuming these shellfish, then the amount of oysters and the funding for new oyster farms and restaurants will increase. This, as Dr. Harrison mentioned, not only supports the environment, but it also improves the financial success of coastal communities. Spread the word about the beauty of oysters. If you post about oyster mariculture on social media, then more people will learn about the benefits that oysters provide us. Lastly, do your best to not pollute and not contribute to the climate crisis. A lot of pollution and runoff leads to oyster mortality. Higher carbon emissions leading to rising sea temperatures also can kill oysters. If more people reduce their use of fossil fuels or reduce their waste, we will be taking a step in the right direction. Any action that reduces one's impact on climate change and on the environment will have a positive effect on oyster populations. For this to be noticeable, Global reductions in waste and carbon emissions is required. Encourage your local politicians to support sustainable aquaculture and advocate for climate change action. We must also hold businesses accountable for the large role they play in climate change. While it is much harder to alter the behavior and decision-making of corporations rather than yourself, we think it's necessary that businesses receive public and governmental pressure to make more sustainable and environmentally friendly decisions now and in the future. Our actions are all interconnected, so everyone should do their part in supporting and furthering the growth of the oyster mariculture industry. We sincerely believe that aquaculture and shellfish mariculture in particular can help us meet the growing global demand for food, 
reduce the United States' dependency on foreign imports, create jobs, sustain our coastal communities, rebuild and remove the pressure from wild shellfish stocks, and support wild fisheries. This is a super green industry, and it definitely warrants our support and our lasting efforts to mitigate climate change to protect our little shellfish heroes who do their part to save us. So will you help us save them? We want to thank you all for spending some time with us today. We hope that you learned a thing or two about oysters and their relationship with the environment. We also hope that you get involved or follow some of the recommendations on ways to help oysters. We highly encourage you to check out our reading and reference lists located on our individual websites, oystersandclimate.weebly.com and climateforus.wordpress.com. Please share our podcast with others and help spread the word. Lastly, we want to thank our guest speakers, Dr. Jane Harrison and Ms. Natalie Simon, for their contributions to our podcast, as this would not have been possible without their help. You can check out the fascinating research that Dr. Harrison is currently undertaking at North Carolina Sea Grant's website, nccgrant.com. You can also learn more about what Natalie Simon and the Mississippi-Alabama Sea Grant Consortium are doing to help shellfish growers adapt to more frequent storms and hurricanes at masgc.org. We recommend using these resources to learn a bit more about the valuable work being done to protect our coastal ecosystems through oyster-related research and work. We also encourage you to continue exploring these topics on your own, as well as taking actions to reduce your carbon footprint and preserve our coastal ecosystems. Now go get out there and eat some oysters. This week's episode was written and produced by Thomas Odlum and Jaya Brizendine. The music was provided by Zola Berger-Schmitz and the graphics by Tyler Stern. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. You can learn more about us on our website and YouTube channel, Emory Climate Talks. Stay tuned for our next episode, which will discuss how technology, market mechanisms, and policy interrelate in the ongoing effort to mainstream carbon capture and storage.